Morning. Oh dear. Have you not woken up yet? <laughs> Morning, is it? <laughs> is it? <laughs> that one's a bit wobbly. Be alright. Da 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 dee dee dee. Bear with me for a moment. Pretty too high now. Okay, so this morning is the third and final Sunday in our searching <coughs> questions. But today, can we have the slide up, please, Paul? We can just crack straight into the slide. That'd be great. Thank you. Today is probably the most difficult of the three questions, mainly because it's the most emotive one for obvious reasons. It's the most difficult one. Uh, this is a question that I'm sure has or continues to occur to all of us at various moments in our lives. More importantly, it's because this is an issue that affects all of us in our lives at some point. Because, I mean, to ask the question, if there's a God of love, why is there so much suffering? And we see it everywhere we look, don't we? We see illness, we see danger, we see threat, we see death, we see loss, and so on. This is a universal question that none of us, whether we're believers or not, is something that none of us find easy. Is that right? Um, this morning I want to look at three things. I've listed them up here just to make it easier for you. We're going to look at the subject of compassion. Let's just start with the subject of why do we ask this question in the first place? Why do we care? Then we will look at the subject itself, at the core of it, suffering, and just ask, why does it happen? Why is it there? But then, I trust by the end of it, we'll then discover where we find hope. Where do we find hope? Compassion, why does it bother us in the first place? Suffering, why does it happen? And hope, where do we find it? And I trust that as we... Uh, as we work our way through answering these questions over the next 35 minutes or so, I trust we'll see how these lead us to a helpful understanding of who the God of the Bible really is and how he responds to this whole problem. So, without much further ado, let's look at the subject of compassion. We have all, I'm pretty sure, suffered at some point in our lives, if not at the moment. Is that right? Yes. Is it enjoyable? Certainly not. Do we hate it with a passion? We hate it. It bothers us. The thing is, we don't just hate it when it happens to us, do we? We hate it when it happens to our loved ones, to our families, to our friends. But we also hate it when it happens to strangers. We get angry. We, get, we just sense despair and sadness and we just sense an impotence that we can't do anything about it when we see strangers being affected by suffering on the news. People we have never met and probably will never met, it still bothers us. And so to ask the question, why, why do I care so much about this? Why does this bother me? Is a really important question to start with in the first place. Why is that a problem in and of itself? Let's just take a step back for a moment. Bunny rabbits. Who likes bunny rabbits? 
Help me, help me define, a, how would you define a bunny rabbit? Cuddly, fluffy, furry, tasty. You can't beat a bit of rabbit stew. Cuddly, furry, keep going, any more? Hoppy, floppy ears, always a favorite. Cute, absolutely. Now help me define a human being. How would you define a human being? Don't say tasty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great minds. How would you define a human being? Complicated. Complicated. With a awesome. Keep going. Complex. Complex. Ugly. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself, Kev. <laughs> Cuddly. Cuddly, okay. Loving. Versatile. Emotional. Fallen. Intelligent. Miraculous. Stupid. Right, you're not. You're right, Dave. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Never falling out this morning. Have you noticed what we've just done? As the moment we start asking how do you define a bunny rabbit, we're talking about its physical attributes. Straight away, cuddly, furry, cute, etc. The moment we're asked to define a human being, it's on a whole other level. We haven't even touched on the two legs, arms, head, etc. We suddenly, there's a whole other realm to humanity that is different to animals. We are other. And so, of course, when we try to define a human being, it leads us to the subject of character, personality, sense of humor, sense of honor, altruism, values, and so on. Now, some animals may have slivers of some of these things. Some animals, like dogs, can have a sliver of a personality, and sometimes there's a little touch of humor in them. They seem to know what's funny. I wish my dog had a bit more of that. But, <laughs> but generally speaking, there is a vast chasm between any other creature on this planet and humans. There is a huge, vast chasm that cannot be attributable to pure biology. We can see that while animals are primarily defined by their bodies, humanity is not. There is something more about human beings. You may uh, recall, nearly 20 years ago, somewhere around 2000, there was some footage coming through on the news um, from Romanian orphanages. Do you remember some of the devastating footage we saw of these young children that were born in the 90s, aged five or six, never been picked up, never been cuddled? Again, this is just something that just punches us in the gut just to watch it. Um, they realized these children that had never been picked up in all those years, never been cuddled. They portrayed traits similar to psychopaths. They had a inab complete inability to distinguish right from wrong. They did not know how to express emotion. This, uh, there were studies done at the time to try and work out the, wise, the connections between how they've been treated and how, how they then presented and so on and so forth. Now, they've been linked with other um, studies since, which include the, the observation, the fact that humans are the only species on this planet that are born without a, f without a fully formed brain. We are the only species on this planet whose brain is not fully formed at birth. Now, these unformed higher brain parts, are the higher part of the brain, these develop later. These are the parts that are to do with relationship. And so, you remember back in the day, back in the decades and decades ago, back in the asylums, that it was all the rage, for want of a better word, to give people frontal lobotomies. 
And that was, almost to, that was to destroy these higher brain parts that are related to uh, relationship. And so people end up becoming kind of semi-catatonic, unemotional, slightly zombified, if that makes sense. It's destroying those parts of the brain. These are the parts that we are not initially fully um, formed with we're at birth, and they develop later, particularly in the first 18 months, which is why the early years of bonding and, and attachment are so vital to um, babies and toddlers. And then there's spurts in those areas again later on in preteen years and in later teenage into young adulthood years as well. These are the parts that are to do with relationship. We are unique in this and how we're born. We, we need to recognize that we are uniquely born as humans with a need for community in order to, uh, for us to fully flourish to our potential. We are not just born with a need for food and water and warmth. There is something else we need as well. We were made for relationship. And the Bible says we were made for relationship with God and we were made for relationship with each other. There is a vertical and a horizontal relationship need for us from the moment and we're born. And so to ask, why do I care? Why does this bother me? It must stem from our need to not be alone. And yet, we look around and we see that something in this system is so deeply broken. There is something deeply flawed and we need to ask why. I remember four years ago, 2015, Stephen Fry was in a TV interview. Some of you may have seen it at the time. And he was asked the question, if you met face to face, Stephen Fry is an atheist, but hypothetically, if you, Stephen Fry, were to meet with God at the pearly gates, what would you say to him? And this is his words. Stephen Fry says to God, how dare you create a world to which there is such misery that is not our fault, it's not right, it's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? Well, the thing is, the Bible tells us that God didn't create the world like that. The Bible tells us that God never designed this earth to be a place of suffering in the first place. He designed it and made it to be very, very good. And he gave it to us humans to be caretakers of all that he's been made. We're the ones who have screwed it up. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 1 from verse 36. It's the very first chapter of the Bible. I'm going to read from the Common English Bible translation, which is a slightly more readable version, just to help us this morning. It's very close to the... Um, English um, standard version we use to, to teach from because that's word for word translation. Common English just helps rephrase it just slightly in a really helpful way just to make it a bit more readable. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Uh, God has made the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea, the animals, the birds, the fish and so on. And then it goes, verse 26, then God said, let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth and all the crawling things on earth. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. Then God said, I now give to you all the plants on the earth that yield seeds and all the trees whose fruit produces its seeds within it. These will be your food. 
to all wildlife, to all the birds in the sky, to everything crawling on the ground, to everything that breathes, I give all the green grasses for food. And that's what happened. God saw everything he had made, it was supremely good. God made everything supremely good and he handed it to us for nurturing and caring. He gave it into our responsibility. We are uniquely created. We are separate. We are reflecting God in our otherness. And he placed this supremely good creation into our care. But here is where we find where the spear of suffering suddenly strikes. Because from the outset, we discover that God gave us the choice to relate with him. He gave us choice. He could have made us robots. We have no, no option but to follow our programming to love him back and to do what he says. But God is a better God than that. And he gave us the choice to love him and to honor him. He gave us the ability to choose. He made us for relationship, not blindly doing as we're told. Because relationship by nature is two-way. It's not, relationship is not one way. That's completely dysfunctional. Relationship is two-way. Jenny and I, we choose to love each other. The success or failure of our marriage is not dependent just on some vows we said in July 1994. It's how we live up to those vows every single day afterwards. How we live them out. We choose to love each other. There was one time, I can't remember, we were trying to remember when it was. Was it seven-year itch era or ten years in? Is it before the seven-year itch? There was one point where Jenny turned around to me and she said, right now, I really don't like you. <laughs> she said, I really don't like you right now, but I still love you. She was right. She had every right to call me out. I was being an idiot. I was in Stevie Universe on my own little planet, my own little world, not giving her the attention she needed as my wife. I was, she, she, she was right to say it. She called me out and it gave me the kick up the bottom that I needed. But she's saying, I really don't like you right now, but I, am, I still choose to love you. You see, love is not a feeling, like the songs sometimes tell us. Love is an act. Love is a choice. And so we, as humans, we are created as something wholly different to the animal kingdom to love God back. But the trouble is that then there lies the ability to choose otherwise, isn't there? And instead, what did we do? We chose to go our own way. We, were, we chose to play with the toys that God had given us, turn our backs on him and then break them. That's not an act of love, is it? Well, that's what happened. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. Again, just for readability, just for this morning. I'm going to read from the Common English Bible again. But here we discover that there is a supernatural entity called the accuser, the Satan, as we might know. It's, it's not just, Satan is not his name. His title is the Satan, and it just means the accuser. He is a supernatural entity who has turned away from God himself, from the angelic realm, and he is out just to rebel against God and take us down with him. He is not to blame, but he has some responsibility in this. But we see him in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, the devil, he just plants the seed of an idea that humanity embraces instead of rejecting. It says here, he comes in the form of this serpent. It says, The snake was the most intelligent of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He, the accuser, he said to the woman, Did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? 
And the woman, this is Eve, she said to the snake, we may eat the fruit of the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, don't eat from that and don't touch it or you will die. The snake said to the woman, you won't die. God knows that on the day you eat it, you will see clearly and you will be like God. There's the temptation. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful with delicious food and that the tree would provide wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then they both saw clearly and knew that they were naked, meaning suddenly they realized how exposed they were in their brokenness suddenly before God. You see, God was saying to them, you have everything. Just don't aspire to be like me. That won't bring you life, wanting what you don't have. Simply embrace what it means to be human. That's what he's saying. He's giving us a choice now. But we wanted more. And so our first parents, Adam and Eve, who are unique, who are separate, reflecting God, who are made for society and culture and honor and love, these representatives of the rest of us who have later followed on, they, we, turned our backs on God and decided we knew better wanting to be like him. And that is when something called sin made its first appearance on this earth. Sin is not just the naughty things we do. Sin is what's behind that. They're just the symptoms. Sin is anything in you or I that rebels against God with him saying that way, me saying this way. Sin is finding my happiness or my worth in anything other than the source of all that is good and all that is, all that is life. Finding my happiness and my worth in anything other than him. That's what sin is. And so we can seek after fame, find my contentment, find my happiness, find my value in my career or in money or in sex or in power or in other people, in addictions, in leisure, whatever it might be. Finding our worth and our happiness in that rather than him. That's sin. And therefore, sin's effects, they still surround us today, don't they? We still see the effects of it. There is, this is a, suddenly there's a brokenness inside us and outside us, and we see its effects. It's inward brokenness, for example, you might call, it's sometimes referred to as moral evil, as our inward brokenness. We see, we see examples of that all the time. Some of the obvious ones would be 9-11. That was man's actions. That was an ideology that man bought into that was anything other than God and it resulted in a devastating, awful, awful tragedy. 9-11 is one. We see knife crime just generally in our country, let alone gun crime in other countries. We see the embezzling of people's pensions. We see racial prejudice. We see preying on the elderly. We see domestic and sexual abuse and so on. That is the result of inward brokenness, moral evil, sin within man. The trouble is, it's then easy to point the finger at people who are supposedly worse than us. But I've got to say, every single one of us in this room, we all have victims. We all have victims. At some point in our life, probably more than once, we have hurt people with the things we've said, the things we've done, the things we haven't said. We cannot point the finger. We're all... To blame. There is brokenness within each one of us in this room, let alone what we see in the news. That's inward brokenness, but then there's outward 
brokenness as opposed to moral evil. You might call it natural evil. Now, we've got to be careful here because we look at, uh, there was the 2004 tsunami in Southeast Asia, if you remember that. It's pretty devastating. There's the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. We have to realize those are tragedies when humans are involved. If there's no humans involved, those are just natural processes that actually release nutrients into the atmosphere and produce landscapes that we then marvel at. It's when humans are involved we call them tragedies. Does that make sense? Sometimes these things happen. Sometimes these are processes on the planet. They're devastating when humans are involved. But that's when the inward brokenness, the moral evil comes in again because there are a lot of people trapped in those situations who have no choice to live there and can't move away because of poverty, because of corruption and have an ability to escape when they know it's coming because of poverty and corruption. Famines as well. Sometimes those are just dry seasons in that area. But because people live there and have no means of choosing to live anywhere else, because of government corruption, injustice in sharing of wealth, they're stuck there. They have no choice to live in a land where that doesn't happen. And people die as a result. So often there's moral evil, inward brokenness affecting those moments as well. But there is also other forms of natural evil, outward brokenness that we see in terms of sickness, cancer, deformities, and so on. And we have to recognize that our actions as human beings have affected uh, not just the natural realm, but has wrought violence in the supernatural realm as well. Because what has been entrusted to us humans, inside and outside, has been corrupted by our actions, by our choice to choose God other than uh, to choose other than God, rather than Him, the source of all life. Our relationship with this planet is not inconsequential. Our physical actions affect it, and our spiritual actions affect it. See, sin is a cosmic spanner in the universe's cogs, basically. And when we chose to go our own way, everything broke, everything went out of sync, and the virus went pandemic, if you like. Because otherwise, if there is no supernatural dimension, then everything around us is just a bunch of atoms and molecules. Does that make sense? The people you're looking at right now are just clumps of atoms and molecules. If there is no supernatural realm, that's all it is. Nice, huh? And therefore, if that's the case, what did you say? A great clump. A great clump. <laughs> Some are better, better looking clumps than others. <laughs> if, that, if that's the case, there's no supernatural realm where we are just walking clumps of atoms and molecules. Therefore, disasters and plagues are just natural outworkings of that, and we need to be all right with it. Richard Dawkins, I just want to quote from him now. We've been quoting from him the past two Sundays already. I'm not setting him up to be an easy punch bag here. He doesn't always help himself. But I only want to quote from him today because if there is, supernatural, if there is no supernatural dimension to life, then what he says here I'm about to read out makes perfect sense. He says... In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. If there's no supernatural realm, he's right. So why do we still cry out? Why does it still bother us? Because the Bible would tell us it's because we know it's not right. This is where the Christian author C.S. Lewis comes in. He wrote the Narnia books, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He says this, When his search for God, how he came to 
know Jesus, this, this is what really helped him along his way. He said, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But just how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line to compare it with. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? The fact that we know deep inside that the state of nature as we see it is not right, let alone what we see in our own hearts when we're, whenever we're actually honest with ourselves, it means there is not only a wrong, there therefore has to be a right. Tim Keller, he says, If you believe in God, evil and suffering are a problem. But if you don't believe in God, it's an even bigger one. If you believe in God, evil and suffering are a problem. But if you don't believe in God, it's a bigger one. It's a bigger problem. See, we see brokenness uh, within ourselves. We see brokenness within the world. And we cry out against this world being on fire. But in our own abilities, we haven't been able to find the fire exit. See, this fire exit, the answer with a capital A, is not found in trying harder. I'm pretty sure after all these thousands of years we'd have found it. But the answer is not found in easy sound bites or cheesy replies either because we're, we're still walking in it now, aren't we? Many of us more than others in some ways. This is not something we need to try to tie up neatly because we're still walking in the midst of it. But if we're willing to open our eyes then we can find a good God who is still in the midst of what we've done. So my wife, Jenny, is a prime example. In 1992, we'd only been dating two weeks. She was involved in a car crash, broke her back, one of her vertebrae splintered into many fragments, and she was a hair's breadth away from ending up in a wheelchair, as it then turns out. She was diagnosed after x-rays at the hospital with bad bruising, sent home to walk around in it. Uh, months later, long story short, but with other reasons, other factors, God was good in it. Um, it got discovered, got fixed, metal work put in, uh, amazing operation that the surgeons did. Uh, but she's had chronic back pain ever since. Every hour of every day since 1992, Jenny has chronic back pain. She's dosed up to the eyeballs on morphine. She hides it well. Uh, she's my hero, how she walks in that. But within that, having more metal work put in, and now it turns out you might be scheduled for a third lot of metal work to be put in as well. Walking through that, my wife's amazing. But she, as well as I know, that strength isn't just found in her. She's found that in knowing a God who walks through it with her. She, she's cried out in prayer, asking for healing. Many of you guys and other friends have been praying for healing, and for some reason, sometimes it happens. For Jenny, it hasn't. She's learned to trust that God's got a better plan than that, and he's done a deeper work in her as a result. And she would say she knows God more, a good God, more because of it rather than less. She's known that as she walks through this darkness, and there have been dark days, there have been tears behind closed doors, isn't there, darling? But we know that God is good. And Jenny can stand and say, I know the good God even more because of it. He's doing a different work in her. She's found God in the darkness. In, um, in 2000, the year 2000, my, I'm going to cry again in a minute, <sighs> my best mate, James, he was my best man, we grew up together, he's just 18 months, two years younger than me, he's a legend of a bloke, he's just one of those guys, he walks in a ring, wasn't loud, wasn't life and soul of the party, 
there was just a gentle, godly spirit in this guy that he just changed the room just by being there. I don't want to set him up to be the legend he wasn't. <laughs> he was human. But there was just something about... Sorry? He was a legend. There was just something about this guy that God had put in him. And in the year 2000, he'd been married for, got married at 25. He was 27 in the year 2000, driving to work for the MOD in Bedford. And nobody knows why. Witnesses, he was alone in his car. Witnesses say his car just wobbled, went off the road hit a the big concrete stanchion of a bridge on the dual carriageway, dead in an instant. Now, while that was a, more than a gut punch to us as his friends, his family, that's just, it's just devastating. It was the 19th anniversary this Thursday, and even his younger brother posted something on Facebook that just makes you weep. How that family have walked through that darkness is just astonishing, and it's only because of Christ at work in their lives. All four of, four of them, his wife as well, all of them, his, his parents, his brother, his sister, his wife, they all love Jesus, his grandparents. And at the funeral, and it was just so heaving. At the funeral, the way his family stood at the front, and there was a lots of tears and snot, but how they managed to just praise the, a good God behind it all was just, of itself was astonishing. But at the, what's the American word, at the wake, you know, the bit afterwards, his, um, his dad came up to me, he wheeled up to me, He's, he suffers from MS, still, even worse now, but even by then his dad was in a wheelchair with his multiple cirrhosis. He wheeled up to us and he said, you know what, he said, I've been reading Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, and I'm sure many of us have read that book. The word grace simply means God's undeserved favour, God's love that pays a price. Uh, that's what was meant by the word grace. He said, I've been reading What's So Amazing About Grace. And he said, you know what, he said, I'm gutted my son's gone. But he said, my son knows about grace far more now, seeing Jesus face to face than I can ever discover on this planet. How could he say that? His little boy are gone. But he knows there's a good God in the darkness. He can know peace in the storm because of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 describes God beautifully. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction. Um, um, was it a couple of years ago, three years ago, when there, there was the Manchester bombings at the Ariana Grande concert? And she quickly um, scheduled, um, uh, it's called One Love Manchester, it was about a month later, was it six weeks later, big concert for Manchester for free. Um, Justin Bieber was on the stage, he performed in that. Justin Bieber, he's a Christian, he loves Jesus. And he said, standing on that stage to those thousands and everyone who's watching the TV, he said, God is good in the midst of the evil. He said, God is good in the midst of the darkness. This is where we find a good God. Not in easy, cheesy sound bites, but walking through it with us. Because we can ask, well, why didn't he just snap his fingers and end the suffering? It's an easy question to ask, isn't it? Why didn't he just stop it? If he's God, he's capable. Why doesn't he just stop it? The Bible promises one day he will. The Bible promises one day he will snap his fingers and it will be, he will say, enough is enough. I'm done. The day has come. 
And in the final book of the Bible, Revelation, it describes what happens, where we see that God says he will start again. Where heaven and earth will be perfectly melded together in a new creation, God and man at one together with no sickness, no shame, no sin, no death, no pain. Full stop. Period. End of. He will. But when that happens, we need to understand that he has been giving us opportunity all along, in the meantime, to find him in the midst of the evil and the darkness, to not turn our backs on him, but turn our faces to him. He's giving us a chance to meet with him. To find him in the midst of the evil and darkness, rather than just looking out for ourselves. And I say, don't risk finding that out when it's too late, after he snapped his fingers. You can get to know him now. Because by then, if that happens before, if you die, or if that happens before you have chosen him, you'll find that in not choosing him, in not choosing to have walked with him, you have made your choice. And he's calling you. He's calling you now. Seek him while he can be found. Because do you you want to know this God who wants to know you? Because you can know him. He has a name. His name is Jesus. And because far from being aloof and distant, God actually understands our suffering. He has stepped into this suffering to meet with us in it, physically, as a human being, fully God and fully man. Jesus of Nazareth, that's a historical figure we discovered about two weeks ago. And he came in, to give us this chance before he presses the reset button. In this darkness, he is our hope. Because two weeks ago, I was talking about, I was describing the Bible as actually a love story between faithful God and unfaithful man. That's what the Bible is. And it tells us about a God who cares so much about this brokenness that he stepped into it. Rather than just snapping his fingers and fixing things, it doesn't work like that. He's got to contend with it. He can't turn a blind eye to the stains in our hearts. He can't go, oh, that's all right. Because not only does that dismiss sin, that dismisses his perfection. He has to deal with it. So how? He stepped into our brokenness, facing its consequences head on, and providing a way to wholeness and completeness in him alone. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we're excited about this God that came to earth as a baby, grew up into a man, lived a perfect life that we cannot live, an unbroken life in the midst of the darkness, And then as the God of compassion, who not only had compassion on the crowds, who not only wept for individuals as well as for the masses, he cared deeply enough to put, for want of a better phrase, to put his money where his mouth is. And in an act of the most ultimate altruism, he sacrificed his own life for the lost, for you and me. Because Jesus himself, he suffered on the cross, which physically is the worst form of death ever. It's not, just, it's not just pain. It's not just a bit of blood loss. That is complete agonizing asphyxiation where you, you crush your lungs. That's what it does to you. It's a horrible, horrible death. It's not just the physicality of it all. It's the spiritual and emotional torment between him and Father who had never been apart in eternity. Never began always known and loved each other, and suddenly in that moment, Jesus is carrying our ugliness on his shoulders. 
And suddenly there's this momentary fracture for the first time and only time ever between him and his father. That's where the agony was. When he represented us and stood in our place. Tim Keller, again, he says, For an animal to suffer is one thing. A human suffering is a higher level. But for God to suffer is a whole other degree. We just can't ignore the immensity of what Jesus has done for us. He not only stepped into our suffering, but he willingly took it upon himself to bring us home, to make us whole, to heal our brokenness, to give us eternal life. And that's where we find hope. We find hope in the God who has made a way to not just escape this. It's like Buddhism and escaping to nirvana and so on and so forth. This is, this is the ability to walk with him in this life and know one day we will be home where there will be no sin, no death, no pain, and we'll be his. But we have to choose him. Remember, love is a choice. It doesn't just happen to you. Love is a choice. You have to choose him. But he gives us more promises than that. He says, Matthew 28, verse 20, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. As we continue to walk through this darkness, while well, God's given us more opportunity to meet with him before he ends it, he gives us more choice to choose him. And we can know that when you do choose him, you know that Jesus will be with you always to the end of the age. The universe is broken. Our bodies, our minds, our hearts are broken. And ultimately, it's our fault. Collectively, it's our fault. But I know you can find wholeness, you can find healing, you can find friendship, you can find an eternal future with that creator himself, Jesus Christ. I don't want to have the last words today. I want to introduce you to a guy called Nick Voyachik. Some of you may have come across him before. We're just going to watch a five-minute video, and then we're going to worship, sing songs of celebration about this amazing God together. Just watch his video. I'll let him speak for himself. You might need tissues. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll let him have the last word. Thanks, Paul. Born in Australia without arms or legs, 30-year-old Nick Vujicic has become a symbol of triumph against all odds. His inspiring YouTube videos have been watched over 100 million times. It's a lie to think that you're not good enough. It's a lie to think that you're not worth anything. But the road to self-acceptance was excruciating for Nick. For years, he was harassed and tormented at school. When he was 10, Nick attempted suicide. After years of feeling worthless and alone, Nick's awakening came while reading an article about a disabled man who refused to let physical limitations hold him back. In that moment, Nick says he discovered the power to take control of his life, and he has. Today, Nick surfs, he snorkels, he golfs, and plays soccer. He's traveled to 44 countries with his message of hope. Even the worst part of your life can come together for the good. And less than a year ago, Nick married the love of his life and danced at their wedding. Nick's in our audience tonight. Say hello to Nick. We're standing up for Nick. Now, this is what's so unbelievable. As you've heard, people complain about the spots on their face and people complain about not 
having a boyfriend and not being able to have the mates of their life. What happened to you that you were able to take all of you, take your chemistry, being born with no arms and no legs, take your connections, your relationships, your life circumstances, mm -hmm. your state of consciousness, and then choose, make the conscious choice yeah. that you were going to take all of that which the rest of the world looks at, you know, undeniably as a pretty bad hand, and that you were gonna turn it into something, you were gonna be exalted by it. What, what happened to you that you were able to do that? Oprah, I know that you love to think out of the box and have things outside of the box in your yes. show. Yeah. And I know that you love illustrations. So if I may illustrate in about 180 seconds, can I do something a little crazy, but it'll sure, be powerful? Go Is that right cool? Ahead. You got a camera behind me, right? Yeah. I'm gonna show you. Come, come, come. This step right here. Is there enough light here? Okay. The chemistry. I was born without arms and legs. The chemistry I could not change in my life. I know that God didn't give me this pain, but what the enemy tried to use for bad, he turned into good. Yeah. Man, the connections. I want to tell uh, Porsche, uh, look, I'm a guy, I love cars, okay? And I love Porsches more than Ferraris, okay? <laughs> and, and, I uh, want everyone to know that, that we are wonderfully and fearfully made. And until you can actually understand that we are all wonderfully and fearfully made from God, um, I want you to know that, that you will always be trapped and chained and you will be stopped. But when you have the incredible power of faith in action, nothing holds you back. And you're beautiful just the way that you are. No worries. For me, I felt the connection. Yeah. For me, in my life, I'm thinking, man, I'm not going to get married. I can't, you know, can't even hold my wife's hand. What connection am I going to have? But you know what? All things come together for the good for those who love him. Man, this is a little bit high. I'm going to break my arm, man. This is pretty crazy. All right. I'm going to break my arm. Circumstances. Being born without arms and legs, man, it's all about choice. You asked me what it was. I had parents who were my heroes. They always said, you, you can either be angry for what you don't have or be thankful for what you do have. Do your best and God will do the rest. And consciousness, because I gave my life to Lord Jesus Christ and the renewing of my mind, I knew that I could be unstoppable. an amazing video incredibly encouraging we're going to come now and worship our God worship the God that Nick there was talking about uh, I'm going to hand over to Pete who's going to lead us in, in our songs now <laughs> 